are we doing? Are we doing good? Are we sure? Yeah? Absolutely? Kids are going to go back to school for a whole week this week? Yeah? That's a miracle in itself. Thank you, Maddie. That's awesome. So for those of you who don't know, um, we, of course, have, have, are about to start. This is day seven of the 21 days of prayer and fasting that church has been doing. If you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to go back and listen to Craig's um, message. Um, also, uh, if you did miss out, we do have um, little devotionals and a prayer booklet um, and stuff like that that you can get um, in there at the info desk. So if you missed out last week, please grab it. If you didn't realize that we were in the middle of uh, prayer and fasting and you'd like to join us with that, um, just do a 14-day fast, not a 21-day one. It's quite simple. So the thing about fasting, though, is that it makes you see food everywhere, right? Like, I swear, every time I pick up my phone on Facebook or on Instagram, all I'm seeing is food. And I very rarely actually watch normal TV. I, I, I tend to do, you know, watch, like, binge a series on Netflix or something. So, but a couple of, I, I got this guilty pleasure I like watching Treasure Island, and I know it's terrible, but it's actually a lot of fun. So anyway, so I watch that, but to watch that, you've got to watch it on normal TV, and it's like every single ad is about food. Does, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one that's seen that? What, what I find interesting, particularly in our, in our world, our culture, where we are all living, is that food is actually really quite readily available for us. Like we get three meals a day coffee in the morning if you're that way inclined, wine in the evening if that's your thing, and you can have snacks all day long, right? That's actually the world we live in. But also the world we live in has a huge amount of food waste. We had this huge food excess, but we also had this huge food waste. And one of the things I, when I was kind of reading and researching is that the average family of four, so if you have a larger family, it's gonna be more, but the average family of four waste $1,500 of food a year that goes straight into the bin. And that's shocking. It's even worse when you're fasting because you're like, why? Why would you throw out the food? Well, that's just me. In our world and in the culture that we live in, we think that appetite and hunger are the same thing. On one hand, we live in a world that has a huge amount of food excess. And on the other hand, we live in a culture where we actually have a worship of the body, a body, body idolatry, and in particular of sexuality. And what this does, if you think about it, is it sends really mixed messages to people. Have you been to the supermarket? And when you're standing in queue at, to, at the checkout, they have all the food stacked up there just in case you wanted to buy something. But also they have magazines, right? You, you, know, the, you know what I'm talking about, the checkout? And I was standing there the other day, and there were two magazines that kind of spoke to me. One was a picture of Chris Hemsworth without a shirt on and his nine-pack, because apparently that's a thing. And so he's there in all his, his body glory and body worship that we do. But then right next to him was another magazine, and, it had a and on the cover of that magazine was a raspberry and chocolate cake with a cream and chocolate ganache. Right? So you have this mixed message because on one hand, we're saying, and you want to look like Chris, Chris Hemsworth if you're a guy or his female equivalent, but on the other hand, you really want to eat the cake. Now, I don't know about you, but in my life or with my genetics, those two things are mutually exclusive. They don't work. I can't eat the cake and end up looking that good. 
uh, uh, is that just me? Do you know what I mean? Like what it is, is we have this really bizarre world that we live in. And many of us, because of that, actually suffer from eating disorders and we suffer from body dysmorphia and, there's, and along with that comes guilt and shame. So we have a culture where we worship food excess and where we worship body idolatry and its twin, which comes along with it, which is body insecurity. And what it says to us is that the body has become our master. It has a power and an authority over our emotional health. It has a power and authority over our spiritual state. Food, our body, and our desire for food has way more power over us than any of us are willing to admit. And underneath that, what actually drives that is something that psychologists call the pleasure principle. The pleasure principle, in a nutshell, is what feels good in the moment. Now, usually this is something that we experience a lot of in childhood, and usually you start to outgrow this by the time you hit your um, hit the, the late teens, early 20s. You start to outgrow the pleasure principle. What psychologists are telling us now is that is not the case. That over the last generation, last two generations, they say, that, the, that we are not outgrowing the pleasure principle. Hence why we have a huge rise in addictions. Hence why we have a huge rise in divorce and in debt. You see, there are many things that are pleasurable in the short term that do long-term damage to us. And there are many things, the reverse is also true, there are many things um, in the short term that are difficult but are hugely beneficial. And as long as we live our life based on the pleasure principle, we will never, ever be able to enjoy life as God intended it. Because in reality, we are not running our lives. We are being run, our lives are being run by our flesh. Our society has set us up to indulge, to feed, and to gratify our flesh. Now, we're talking about, this being, we're talking about spiritual rhythms. So is there some way to break this? Because as Christians, that is not how we are to live. We aren't to live to feed and indulge and gratify our flesh. And you know what? Jesus actually has quite a bit to say. And the first thing he actually says about this is about fasting. And I want you to just add a bit of context. So I want to turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Verse 7. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Now, because we actually read an English translation of a, of a Hebrew Bible, of a Hebrew work, what we miss is a real play on words that happens here. Adam is the Hebrew word for man, for person, for human. We use it as a proper name, Adam. We would say it's a name Adam. In Hebrew, it's Adam, and it's not, it's not something you would call somebody because it just it means human. There's another Hebrew word there called the Adama. The Adama is the Hebrew word for dirt, for soil, for earth. 
So the Adam came from the Adama. What this means is that humans have a symbiotic relationship with the earth. Man was literally made from the dust. Verse 7, And the Lord God formed man in the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Hebrew word for breath is ruach. It means breath or spirit or person. So what we have is we have man or human who was dust but also spirit, who was physical but also spiritual, who was material but also immaterial. You see, man is both like and unlike the animals who are body but no spirit, but also like and unlike angels who are spirit with no body. You see, man is actually a hybrid. We're a mixture of the two. You are dust and you are spirit. And fasting and all of its benefits will never make sense to you unless, of course, you can grasp this, that you are actually an integrated being. You are dust and spirit, physical and spiritual. And fasting is actually praying with your whole body. It's not just praying with your words. It's not just praying with your mouth. It is praying with your whole body, with your stomach, and with your just... And we actually do this for a specific reason. The reason why we do this is because something has gone wrong in our body. Something has gone wrong. And it goes all the way back to the original sin, to the fall. So if you tell me to Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that in that day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Original sin had to do with food. With the inability to not eat something that was in front of you. The temptation was not really about not eating food, right? There was a deeper meaning here. The temptation here was actually about redefining what is good and evil. It was about wanting to trust your own instinct and what the serpent said rather than trusting what God had said and what his vision is for, our, for human flourishment. That has always been the temptation in our life, is to always redefine what is good and evil based on our own opinion, on our own gut and our own instinct rather than what God says. The temptation is to say what is good and evil based on what the culture says, not what God says. Ignatius puts it this way, and I think it's, it's, it's been playing in my head over and over, and I think it's brilliant, I think it's so true. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. I, find, I think that's the most, probably one of the most powerful things I've ever read. 
Now, there's an inversion that happens in the story. If you are familiar at all with the story in Genesis, you will know that God had put man over the creation, that God had said that man could have dominion over the earth and over the plants and over the animals. But instead, what we see what happens here is that during the fall and because of original sin, everything gets inverted. And human beings are now being ruled over by creation, by a serpent from the animal kingdom and by a fruit from the plant world. Now, the animal kingdom and the plant world have power and authority over human beings. Something has gone wrong in the body, and we have had this inversion happen, and all of a sudden, our body is now being mastered by our love for food and our love for pleasure and not for the things that God says. Paul says, who will save us from this body of death? Now, it's a rhetorical question, but what's our answer? Jesus. When you're in church, if somebody ever asks you what the answer is, it's Jesus. Nine times out of ten, it's going to be Jesus. Just say Jesus. No one's going to growl you if, if you get it wrong. Like, honestly, just, we'll try that again. Who is going to save us from this body of death? Jesus. Excellent. There we go. See, we learned something. So Jesus, right? So let's look at Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and nights... Afterward, he was hungry. The Bible is so understated. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, just to clear it up, Jesus did not have celiacs. He's not against bread. Jesus likes bread. He's not, you know, just just to be clear. Because I heard some people, I heard this bizarre thing on on YouTube, there was a person saying that Christians shouldn't eat bread. No, eat bread. Jesus is the bread of life. We want to eat bread. So here, Jesus is actually replaying Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Here is Jesus, the Adam, coming, a human being coming face to face with the tempter. And here's the temptation. It's about food, but it's not really about food, right? Food is just the vehicle that was being used. This is about a lot more than food. And unlike Adam and Eve who failed, in this instance, Jesus was successful. Unlike you and I who fail, Jesus was successful. Unlike billions of people on this planet who fail, Jesus is successful. You see, where we are defeated, Jesus is victorious. And in doing so, he opened up a kingdom and a rule and a reign for freedom of freedom for anybody who wants to partake in it. If you want to live a life of freedom, you just need to follow what Jesus did. Paul says that in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. How did Jesus succeed where Adam and Eve failed? Is there something in his life, a practice, a way he lived, a rhythm that we can copy? Well, actually, yeah. There's actually two or three. We see silence and solitude. We see prayer. And we see fasting. It says that when Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, was Jesus weak? No, he wasn't. He was strong. He was hungry, but but being hungry doesn't make you weak. He was at the height of his powers. It was only after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights that he had mastery over his own body. You see, Jesus started his kingdom work on this earth with a fast. 
And not only do we see that, but if you read through the Gospels and you read about Jesus, you will see that it wasn't just a one-off fast. One-off, he did 40 days. But he actually instituted a lifestyle of fasting. And it's kind of just put in there very subtly. If you look to the story about the woman in the well, we don't have time to go into it, but if you look at the story about the woman in the well, Jesus comes along, he's been with the disciples, he reaches Samaria and he sits down at the well and he's hungry and they're tired. You know, they're all hungry and tired. And so the disciples go, well, we're going to go off. We're going to, we'll go get you some food. So they wander off to look for food. And Jesus is just sitting there and along comes this woman and she has this encounter with Jesus. And in the midst of this encounter, you know, things, amazing, radical things happen for her and for her whole town. And then the disciples come back and they're like, what happened, Jesus? Did, did somebody bring you food? Because he doesn't look so tired anymore and he's not looking so weary. And what, they, what Jesus says is there's kind of this line in the middle and it's just kind of a throwaway line. And what he says is, uh, I, uh, my work is to do the will of the Father. My food is to do the will of the Father, Right? You remember that line when he says that? And he says that, and we kind of think, oh, you know, Jesus is super spiritual. No, he was telling us the truth. He was fasting, and when he does the work of the Father, when he does what God has willed for him to do, it feeds his spirit, and it feeds his soul, and his body gets, he's got mastery of his own body. What's really interesting is what we see is that when Jesus says, when we see in the stories and you read through the Gospels, you, you come to understand two things. First of all, Jesus assumes that all of his disciples will fast. And secondly, he assumes that we're going to mess it up. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, Jesus says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but your Father who is in a secret place, and your, and your Father who is in the secret will reward you openly. You see, Jesus assumes that his disciples will fast. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you're a believer, if you walk with Jesus, if you have made a confession of faith that, that Jesus is now my Savior, if you do any of that sort of stuff, Jesus actually assumes that you are going to fast. Not if, not maybe, not one day. He says, when you fast, the other thing he assumes is you're going to screw it up, which I think is great because I do all the time. But he does. He basically says that you're not going to get it right. You're going to fast for the wrong reasons. You're going to do it out of, you know, you're going to do it because you want to lose weight. You're going to do it because you think you're going to arm twist God into doing something. You will do it for the wrong reasons. But that's no reason to not fast. So let's address the elephant in the room. Most of us don't fast at all. I did a, my own little survey, and then I tracked down uh, information. Now, this is, this, this is pre-COVID of what they believe in the, the Western church, right? So this is America, Australia, New Zealand, that kind of thing. How frequently do you fast? 55% of the people said never. Never fast. 30% really fast. 12% once a year. And 3% was once a month or less. So we don't fast, right? We just, we just don't. And I think there's a reason for that. But you know what? The church wasn't always like that. I, I want to kind of give you, because I've got a few minutes, I want to give you a brief history of fasting. And because I like history, so. And i got the microphone, so you have to put up with it. Now, in Jesus' first century world, most of the Jews... And all of the Pharisees fasted twice a week. They fasted on Mondays, 
and they fasted on Thursdays. Fasting is actually one of the core principles of that day and age. In fact, at, there was one time when Jesus is preaching on spiritual disciplines in Matthew 6, and he calls out three of the spiritual disciplines by name, prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. These were the mo three most important principles, spiritual practices that he had. Now, the early church continued this after, the, after Jesus' death and when the early church formed. They continued this, by, this practice of bi-weekly fasting, but they changed it to, uh, from Monday and Thursday to Wednesday and Friday. Now, the Adudike, which is the earliest writings we have that is not the New Testament, but was around about the same time as some of those New Testament writings, goes back right back to the first century, says this, Do not let your fast coincide with those of the hypocrites. Pharisees. They fast Monday and Thursday, so you must fast on Wednesday and Friday. I think it's kind of funny because it's like, there's no reason to not fast on the same day as the Pharisees, but you know, we're a bit grumpy sometimes. Now the early church, for a very, very long time, they fasted for twice a week, right? The only days they refused to fast on was Saturdays and Sundays. Saturdays because Saturdays the Sabbath, and Sundays because that was the Lord's Day. And these days were not for fasting, these days were for feasting. These days were for gathering everybody together, putting on some music, cooking up a whole bunch of food, and actually having a party. That is what those two days were for. But here's a quote, which I thought was quite interesting, uh, from the 300 AD on church leadership. If any one of the clergy be found to fast on the Lord's day or on the Sabbath day, excepting one only, let him be deprived. Kind of sounds a bit ominous. I don't know what they meant by that, but it sounds a little scary. But if he be one of the laity, let him be suspended. Now, the one only day that they're referring to here is Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday is the Saturday after Lent, but before Easter. And the whole church, the whole of the early church would fast. Now, Lent, if you have a Roman Catholic or if you have a, an Orthodox Christian background, you will know that Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter. In fact, Lent starts this coming week. So, you know, so Lent, for 40 days, the church would fast. It was a very simple fast. They, they would fast from the time the sun went down until the sun came up. Came up. So you could, you know, you, you ate after the daylight hours. But you wouldn't have any meat and no alcohol for 40 days. It's really similar to the um, Muslim practice of Ramadan. In fact, scholars say that this is where Ramadan came from. It was, it was a copy of, of following Lent back from the early church. Now, our culture has shifted it not to fast, but to give up something. So Lent now in the Catholic Church and, and or Christian Orthodox churches is to give up something for 40 days. So you will give up social media or TV or, I don't know, whatever. So, yeah, so you just give up whatever it is you feel that God is saying you to do. The point is that I'm trying to make is that the early church do a regular fast, which was Wednesdays and Fridays. There are periodic fasts, which is Lent, uh, Holy Saturday, before baptism, before the Lord's Supper. This practice lasted for a really long time. This was a part of the church. It was a part of the calendar. and lasted at least until the time of John Wesley in the 18th century. He is one of the most influential leaders and still has influences felt around the world today. And he had a lot to say about fasting. He says, I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, both in England and Ireland, who, following the same bad example, have entirely left off fasting who are so far from fasting twice a week that they do not even fast twice in the month. The man who never fasts is no more in the way to heaven than the man who never prays. 
Now, let's be honest. Today, that sounds crazy, right? It sounds absolutely crazy. And it sounds crazy because fasting like that is so completely out of step with our culture. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why this has happened. And, you know, I won't really go into it, but it goes back to the Reformation. It goes back to in the Middle Ages where they decided that the body and everything that the body needs was evil. You know, um, food was evil, drink was evil, sex was evil. Everything was evil to do with the body. And so we kind of had this warped time. And we ended up with with, um, the church kind of splitting over it. But at the heart of it, the issue is actually coming down to the hedonism of our culture. Our culture of what feels good in the moment. Our culture of instant gratification. The idea of going without food sounds almost cultish, right? What it means is that the church has lost this practice. The modern Western church has lost this practice because we'd rather embrace the hedonistic culture of the day, the hedonistic culture of the world that we live in. Now, I know you're probably thinking, Trin, this is not a nice message. You're right, it's not, but it's honest, right? We, if we want to implement these things, spiritual rhythms into our life, we need to find out why do we need this spiritual rhythm? What is the purpose of the spiritual rhythm? How do we lose the spiritual rhythm? Because I truly believe that we lost the power of fasting when we caved into the culture of the day and we let our pleasure principle kick in and we wanted to do what we wanted to do and we didn't want to fast because it's not pleasant. So let's look at what fasting, what is fasting? The first thing I want to look at is what fasting is not. Fasting is not abstaining. I hear a lot of times people say, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast from um, social media or I'm going to fast from PlayStation. That's not fasting. That's being an adult. But anyway, it's another story. Um, that's, that's not fasting. That's abstaining. And now there's a really good practice for abstaining. And if there are things in your life that have taken your heart from Jesus, that turn you away from the things of God, then absolutely you should be abstaining from them. You should go, okay, I'm going to abstain from this for a season because it's getting too much control in my life. Because when you're in that state where you're like, oh, I'm going to, instead of coming to church, I'm going to stay home and play on my new game that I got on PlayStation, mm, you've got a heart issue, you need to address that. Abstaining is really, really good for that. The other thing that it is not, it is not dieting. It's not the latest diet fad. Now, I know that we hear a lot about things like intermittent fasting. Now, if you do intermittent fasting, that's great. Your body's going to thank you for it. You'll get healthy. You'll probably clear up your skin, deal with toxic stuff in your body. That's really awesome, but that's not biblical fasting. Biblical fasting is accompanied by prayer. There's a purpose for it. You see, I don't think when Jesus decided to do his 40 days of prayer and fasting that he was doing it to get ripped. I don't think he was doing it so that he looked good when he launched his ministry. Like that was not the purpose, right? So what is fasting? Really simple. Fasting is not eating food in order to feed on the Holy Spirit. Not eating food in order to feed on the Holy Spirit. John Piper says it's the whole body hungering for God. I really like that. Dallas Willard says fasting is feasting and our Lord and doing his will. It's not eating, but it's more than not eating, right? Are you getting that? Because we are dust and we are spirit. So it's not eating, which is the dust. It's more than that, which is the spirit. 
Now, there's no biblical time limit for a fast. Most fasts in the Bible and in the church history were one day long. Uh, and they did it twice a week, usually from sun up to sundown, roughly about 12 hours, right? So they would skip breakfast and lunch and have dinner once the sun went down. Now, there are some examples where they were shorter. If you were a nursing mother, you would normally fast until 12, till, till midday, or you would fast until 3 o'clock, depending on the age of your child. Others were much longer. They would start the fast the night before um, and go a whole 24 hours. So they'd skip three meals. They'd skip dinner, breakfast, lunch, and eat dinner that night. Um, there are also three-day examples in the Bible of fasting. There's seven-day ones and, of course, 40-day ones. Fasting can be done uh, individually, and it can be done communally. Now, it's really important that you get your head around this because there's a lot of misinformation about that. We just read in Matthew 6, um, Jesus is not saying that fasting in public is wrong. In the verse before that, he's actually talking about prayer, and he says the same thing about prayer. And everyone would agree that praying in public is not wrong, right? Jesus is not saying that fasting in public is wrong. What Jesus is saying is that showing off about fasting in public is wrong. Making it a big deal and getting people to tell you how wonderful you are is where it's wrong. And if, if you do that, and the Bible's actually really clear, it says if you say to people, oh, I'm fasting, everybody tells you how great and amazing you are, that's your reward. You got your reward for fasting. I think I'd rather wait and have God's reward. Amen? The Bible is full of examples of people praying and fasting in community. Esther called the whole nation, the entire nation of Israel together for three days of prayer and fasting, no food and no water because the nation itself was under crisis. Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, for 24 hours the, the whole church fasts. They would fast together every year. There are multiple stories in the book of Acts about the early church fasting and praying together. Most, not all, but most of the major characters in the Bible would also fast. Interestingly, the three-day fast, a 40-day fast with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Moses, who's the archetype of um, the law, Elijah, who's the archetype of the prophets, and Jesus, who is the archetype of the Gospels in the New Testament. So the question comes down to this. Why do we fast? Why do we fast? There are, there are, three, there are three major reasons, and then underneath all the, each reason, there's like a whole lot of sub-points and sub-reasons. So, but I'm just going to give you the three main reasons as to why we fast. The first one is to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. The second one is to pray. And the third one is to stand in solidarity with the poor. Now, I don't have time to specifically go over all three of them, but I wanted to kind of hit on the first one because I think that's the most important one that we need to deal with um, today. So we're going to, to starve the flesh and feed the poor. And we're going to look at the book of Galatians just briefly. I won't take much time. I love the book of Galatians. We're going to turn to Galatians chapter 5. book of Galatians is probably my favorite book in the whole Bible. I love this book because it's all around freedom. And it's all about how God gives us freedom and how we can experience freedom. Because when Jesus died and, and rose from the dead, he opened us up to this kingdom of freedom if we want to partake of it. And this is how we partake of it. So this that's a side issue, just telling you how much I love Galatians. Um, let's just go to chapter 5, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. See? Jesus wants us to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, Watch out, for you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not 
gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual morality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, the Greek word for flesh is the word sarx. This word can also be used for body. But Paul, when he's talking here, he doesn't mean the body when he says the word flesh. What he means, and the best definition to put to this is what he means is our distorted, our disordered desires, our bodily desires that are out of whack, our desires for food and drink and sleep and sex and self-preservation, none of which those things are wrong. We have those desires and God gave us those desires, but they have actually been taken and twisted, that they are out of control. They're out of control in our mind and our body and our whole person. And what has happened is that they have been bent away from the good as defined by Jesus and toward good as defined by the serpent or our own voice or the voice of the culture that we listen to. It's our primal animal-like desires for instant gratification. The I want what I want and I will do what I want. It's that drive. That is what we're talking about when we talk about the flesh. It's your inner Eve or your inner Adam, that part of you that is bent in rebellion against God, against the church, against your pastor, against rules, against your parents, against your teachers. We have this bent to rebellion and that is what we talk about when we talk about the flesh. We have that whole, don't tell me what to do, I will do what I want attitude. That is the bend we're talking about. And it's infected not just our body, but it's also infected our minds. You see, Paul says in Romans 8, and we don't have time to go into it hugely, but it says that the mind mind that is set on the flesh is death, and the mind that is set on the spirit is life. You see, our minds have been infected as well. What happens is we have believed lies about what is truth, and we have believed lies about what is not true. We believe lies about what is human and what is not human. We believe lies about what is freedom and what is not freedom, about what is slavery. And if you believe the lies long enough and you start to live those lies lies long enough, they start to become true. And there is a part of you, your flesh, your sarks, that is disordered desires, but it's only a part of you. It's only a small part of you. And the good news is, is that part of you is dying. That part of you will not make it through the resurrection. That part of you will not get onto the other side when you dwell with Jesus. Unfortunately, you have to deal with that part of you now. And there's another part of you, an even deeper part of you, and Paul calls this your spirit. And this is the part of you that is in contact with the Spirit of God. The one thing that is really helpful to think about is that your strongest desires are not actually your deepest desires. 
You see, in the moment, your strongest desire might be to lust or to objectify or to lie, lie to save face or to punch somebody because, you know, you're angry with them. That could be your in the moment strongest desire. But your deepest desire goes even deeper than that. And your deepest desire is because you have this spirit that is in contact with the spirit of God, because you have a spirit that has now come under um, the resurrection power of Jesus, who Jesus has been working on your spirit and your relationship with Jesus has been working with your spirit. You have this spirit, that deepest desire, that desire is to follow Jesus. But the problem is this side of resurrection, we are a mixed bag of desires. We have our flesh and all of its desires and we have our spirit and all of its desires. And we had this constant churning. Because we are these mixed bag of desires, Paul says to us, freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. In fact, I'll quote him, you are not to do whatever you want, end quote. That's not freedom, that is actually slavery. Paul and Jesus, who had a lot to say about freedom, would take serious issue with what our culture defines as freedom currently. You know, our get your laws off my body, it's my business, I can do what I want with my body, that, that's not freedom. We define freedom as the ability to do what I want, when I want, as long as it doesn't harm somebody else. But for Paul and for Jesus, that's not freedom, that's slavery. But not to a Hitler or Mussolini or to a Stalin, but that's slavery to your own flesh. Freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want. Freedom is the ability to live in the spirit and to want what the spirit wants, to have the power and authority over your own mind and over your own body to have self-mastery through the access of the power of the Holy Spirit, to actually will what the spirit wants in and through your life and to know the right thing and to want the right thing and to do the right thing, that is freedom. You see, Jesus says to us, come, take up your cross and follow me. Paul says it this way, crucify, not gratify, not indulge, not feed, but crucify the flesh. That is how we gain freedom. So how do we do this? Really big answer, but I'm going to cut it right down. The short answer is through the spiritual disciplines through the spiritual practices, the things that we see Jesus doing, through making spiritual rhythms in our life. Fasting is probably the first one that we need to address. Fasting is designed to starve your flesh and feed your spirit. When you fast, you feed on the spirit. You, instead of feeding off getting energy from food, you actually draw energy from God himself. When Augustine was asked, why do you fast? This is what he said because it is sometimes necessary to check the delight of the flesh in respect to illicit pleasures in order to keep it from yielding to illicit joys. I really kind of thought that was quite good. We need to deal with some of these good things, the illicit pleasures, which are good things like food and drink and stuff like that, but we want to stop ourselves from yielding to illicit joys, which are the things that we shouldn't be, be touching. I've only really begun to fast over the last few years, and I have found for myself that when I fast, my desires for um, spiritual things actually increases. I want to be more holy. I want to live a more holy life. I find that when I fast that the things like, 
you know, ego and lust and different things like that all lower. And it's almost like you are exercising that muscle. But is there power in this practice? Is that what the power is? No. The power that we are accessing comes from? Thank you. See, the practice is just an access point. The access is what we're trying to do is we're trying to access the power of the Holy Spirit. We're trying to access Him to be able to help us, feed us, so that we can get through this. But i got to warn you, this is not an easy practice. Fasting sucks. It can be annoying and it can be painful. And the thing is, you are essentially picking a fight with your own flesh. And a lot of stuff is going to come up. A lot of stuff will rise to the surface that you didn't even know was there or that you thought maybe you'd dealt with. Richard Foster says, Fasting reveals the things that control us. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will all surface during fasting. I don't know about you guys, but usually by 11 a.m., I'm starting to manifest some things. <laughs> fasting will reveal how much power and authority your flesh still has over you. I really love what Dallas Willard said. When I first read it, it was one of those, oh, kind of hurtful quotes, but I think it's actually um, something we do need to be um, maybe read while we're fasting just to help us. This discipline, talking about fasting, this discipline teaches us a lot about ourselves very quickly. It will certainly prove humiliating to us as it reveals just how much our peace depends upon the pleasures of eating. It may also bring to mind how we are using food pleasure to assuage the discomforts caused in our bodies by faithless and unwise living and attitudes, lack of self-worth, meaningless work, purposeless existence, or lack of rest or exercise. If nothing else, though, it will certainly demonstrate how powerful and clever our body is at getting its own way against our strongest resolve. Fasting is about more than growing your willpower muscle. It is a way to grow in self-mastery with self-control and self-discipline. Self-control is the ability to say no to something, to not do something you like because of the long-term detrimental effect it will have on your life. Self-discipline is the ability to say yes to something, to do something you don't like because of the long-term benefits it will have on your life. In the end, your willpower will get crushed by your flesh. Willpower versus porn will not win. Willpower versus addiction will not win. Willpower versus covering up all those internal wounds that you have will not win. Fasting is more than just your willpower. It's feeding on the Holy Spirit and drawing your energy from God. So for those of you who don't know, almost 30 years ago I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And so that's a really awful disease that affects a lot about how you eat and what you can eat and what you can't eat. Basically, it's, it's the perfect um, excuse to have a diet of a 10-year-old. It's great because you can't actually eat all the healthy stuff. Like it causes so much issues for your body. So you just end up, you find the foods that work for you and you just live off those. So I felt like God say to me a few years ago, just a, maybe four or five years ago, and I felt God say to me, because I, I never fasted, because you know, with the Crohn's it was just like, it was just too hard and caught it because of other issues. So I never really fasted. So I would abstain from stuff instead. But I really felt God say to me, Trina, I want you to fast. Oh, really God? Do I have to? Because, you know, I'm sick. I've got this thing going on. But, and God gave me words. He gave me scriptures. And so I felt that, yep, this is God. God's saying I had to do this. Fine. So I did it. 
I did the fast. And while I was doing the fast, it was great. Things went really well. My health was fine, you know, there were a couple of minor things we had to adjust to, and that's fine, but things went really well. And not only that, but my, like I said before, spiritually I felt powerful, I felt strong, I felt in control. And then what would happen is, we finished the fast, because, you know, the church has done 21 days of prayer and fasting for a while, for a few years now. Um, but kind of like, over time, by the end of the year, I was back to still struggling again with some of these same stuff. And then the following year would come around, and yep, 21 days of prayer and fasting, here we go. So when I was putting together this, I was really excited because I'm like, yeah, 21 days of prayer and fasting because it means that I'm going to have this season where my health is going to be really good and I'm going to be feeling really good. But as I was putting together this message, I really felt like God said to me, Trin, prayer and fasting is not an event. Wait, what do you mean? We do it every year, 21 days. Of course it's an event. We even have, you know, slides to go with it. And we had the, the, the handout books, God. This is a great event that we put together. And God's going to me, it's not supposed to be an event. It's supposed to be a lifestyle. It's supposed to be a rhythm, a way that you live your life. So that's why this year, you might've heard me talk about it before. I said to Craig, I need to make this a part of my life. And I know that God's talking to me about it, but if God's talking to me about it, I think it's gonna be beneficial for everybody. So I said to Craig, I wanna invite the church to come on this journey, to do this. And so what we've done is we're going to have, we've got Connect Week and then we've got Prayer Week. So it's every fortnight. So every fortnight on a Tuesday, 6.30 a.m., 6.30 p.m., we're holding prayer meetings here at the church. But what I want to invite you to do is to fast. After the 21 days is done, I'm inviting you to fast to join with me in making this a habit, to making this a practice, to making this a rhythm that we put into our life. Now it's only, I mean, John Wesley would be upset because we're only gonna be fasting twice a month, but you know, we'll be fine. Like, but I thought this would be a great way for us to start to do this because fasting is a lost practice in the church. It's something that we've allowed the hedonistic culture of our day to overwhelm us and to overrule us and so that we gave it up. So I want us to reclaim it. So I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I want you to go away. I want you to pray about it. I want you to ask God. And then I want you, if, you're, if you want just to commit, you don't have to come and tell me, this is between you and God. But I want you to commit. And every Tuesday when we pray to fast, skip breakfast, skip lunch, have dinner. So is that good? Who's ready to keep fasting? Who feels more empowered to fast? Yeah, I see like a few hands. That's awesome. Why don't we stand our feet? We're going to pray. And then uh, Craig's got a message that needs to come and share with everybody. Father, we just want to thank you first and foremost. God, that everything you do is for our benefit that everything you do isn't about controlling us or putting us under the thumb or putting us under these rules or regulations, but God, everything you do is for our freedom. It's to give us the greatest freedom that we could ever have known. I thank you, God, that right from the beginning, you knew that we were going to struggle so that, God, that you have made this easy. I thank you, God, that as we begin to pray and as we begin to fast and as we begin to make this a lifestyle, God, we begin to see the rhythm of God moving and working through our lives. I thank you, God, that through fasting we're going to be able to tap in and feed on the Spirit of God. 
I thank you, God, that as we be fast, Father, that we're going to start those things in the flesh and the, the lust that we struggle with and the ego that we struggle with and, and the temper that we struggle with. God, that those things are going to fade away as we pick up, Father, your love, your joy, your peace, your long-suffering, your self-control. I thank you, God, that we're going to be a people who are followers of Jesus, who are disciples of Jesus, who when Jesus says, hey, fast with me, that we will fast with you. Who when Jesus has said, hey, come and serve with me, that we will serve with you. Who when Jesus says, give to the poor, that we will give to the poor. I thank you, God, that as we begin this journey of putting these spiritual rhythms into our life, God, that we'll be able to pick them up, make them a part of us and run with them. I thank you, God. I'm looking forward to the testimonies that we're going to hear at the end of this 21 days. Father, as we come together for the healing meeting on the 5th of March. Lord, as we all come together that night, Lord, to raise your name, to lift high your name, God. Lord, that we will hear testimonies of the greatness of God. But I thank you also, Father, for testimonies that we're going to hear at the end of this year of people who have implemented fasting as a spiritual rhythm. I thank you, God, for your, everything we do for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.